Come on, Peter. <laughs> Let's go, guys. So I'm, I'm, uh, if you don't know me, I'm, I'm Chris, and I'm serving in the teens ministry. Sorry. Children and the adults. So the children and the adults, from uh, according to Dave, should go downstairs. One hour. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like. So, one adult should go downstairs with the children. Amen. You got it. Right, right. All right, rocky start, but let's get it on. Let's get it rolling. Um, so, by the way, if you, if you don't know me, I'm Chris. I'm, I'm serving in the teens ministry. And it is so awesome that they are back. And it looks like they had a good time and just a little bit sleepy. So just a heads up, teens, okay? So this is the deal. If I see any one of you sleeping, you will shout me one frozen Coke. That's the deal, all right? So, say amen, amen. But anyway, all right. So let's, let's get this ball rolling and we'll continue with this message in the book of Genesis. Now, for everyone um, who is new in the church, we're doing this whole chapter, uh, I mean, we're doing this whole book in Genesis and we're in the 22nd chapter. Now, Dave's been always saying that if Genesis is a TV series, we're already in season two. Now, if you don't know in any kind of show or in any kind of movie, there's always an iconic scene. For example, if I mention this phrase, Luke, I am your father. I don't know if that was right or not, but everyone knows what it is. Is it, what is it, Al? Wow, no, not true. But it, it could also be like Star Wars, right? Um, or something like um, a character, a Harry Potter reference or, or whatever. But my whole point is, in this chapter, this is about Abraham and Isaac. And everyone, if you look at it in the whole context of the, of the Bible, this chapter has been referenced a couple of times because this is one of such a huge character trait that Abraham has been um, kind of like been praised on or has Abraham been kind of like been seen as this is something righteous or this is something faithful. You know, so just before that, I would like to welcome Vivian as well. So Vivian's back. Vivian's back from his, her trip to the Philippines. And also, um, yep, they've mentioned that uh, Willem and Neil's also heading back. So I, I think they're away. And um, a, a couple of things that, like, before we start this, this, this service, we, we kind of like, um, if we could, we, we, we pray for the people who have been affected um, in the Philippines. There's this huge volcanic eruption that kind of like displaced a lot of people. And apparently a, a, a whole um, church near Batangas or something. So p- please pray for that. And um, as we start, let's start this, 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 um, this lesson with a prayer. So let's pray. So, Father God, we are so grateful today, Lord, just to be here and just to be able to worship you and to glorify you, Lord, and to hear your marvelous um, scriptures and words, Lord. And we pray for the people here, Lord, that 
um, the scriptures can be used and the Holy Spirit will move in our hearts, Lord, and move in, in our minds and move in our lives that we can be better Christians and we can be better disciples, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit will be with me as I um, share this, the, the word of God and um, as, as the Holy Spirit will con- um, convict each and every one of us, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Now we're starting it off with Genesis chapter 22. And, and, and the key phrase here is Abraham tested. Now let's read this chapter. If you can open your Bibles in Genesis chapter 22. So it says here, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. The very next day, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Asak. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, 
your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take the possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set out together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed there. I've got three points of this verse. Now, if you look at it, oops, oh, wrong one. Right, right, right. So the whole point of this verse, I got three points, and the title of my, uh, the title of this chapter is "Be No Do." And hopefully, with the Holy Spirit, we would become better disciples. That without with the scriptures, we could change our hearts using the scripture. And the second point is to know more about the character of God. And third is to do and to actually change our lives based on what the scriptures are saying. So let's start off with point one. Point one is become people who fear God. Point one, this narrative starts off with God testing Abraham. This test requires a sacrifice. And it's just crazy because the sacrifice of all the things that's been sacrificed, God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. We see Abraham's true character in it and how Abraham responds to God's test. In verse 3, how did Abraham respond to God's test? Verse 3, the very next morning. Abraham didn't reason with God. And it wouldn't have been surprising if he reasoned with God too. If you look at his character in the previous chapters, you could see Abraham reasoning a lot with God. While Abraham was having this whole reasoning with God while he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham was reasoning with God over that. While Abraham was um, together with his wife, with Sarah, Abraham reasoned with himself like, should we lie? Should we lie to this Pharaoh? You know? And it's not surprising with Abraham's character. But there's something in the scripture that stood out. Abraham's character stood out. People change and people become more faithful with God. Right? In verse 6, all throughout, we could see a very detailed description on how did Abraham do as what God requested. And it's so, it is so detailed and it's so brutal that I cannot possibly Google an image of that. Because if I post it right here, it'll be like, oh, it's too much. So I'll just Google a children's image of this. So this is Abraham and this is his son, Asak. How could you sacrifice this cute little boy right here? Right? And this is God right here saying, okay, you sacrifice him right here. But if you look at it in the Bible, it's a bit more intense than that. In verse 6 and throughout, we could see a very detailed description of Abraham's test. In verse 6, here's what the verse was saying. Abraham himself carried the knife and the fire. Imagine that. I'm not a father yet, but imagine if you are a father and you're carrying the tools that are needed to murder your son. And it's not like a half an hour walk. It's a three-day walk to that mountain. 
Can you imagine what Abraham had to go through? In verse 9, he, in a very detailed description of the verse, he was the one who bound Isaac and laid him on that altar. Can you picture out Abraham looking at his son, laying down his son on that altar, and his son must be looking at his face? In verse 10, he reached out his hand and took the knife. And while he was doing that, his mind and his heart was thinking about it. And then at that point, the verse said, he was ready to lay, to slay his son. Scriptures was very vivid on this imagery to make a point, right? Because all throughout, from verse 1 to 11, that is how God knew that Abraham feared God. In verse 12, God stopped the test and said, hold up. Because Abraham had done all the things that God considered as fearing him. In verse 12, God said, now I know that you, Abraham, fear God. Speaking of tests, this is God's test, right? And every time I think of tests, I think of this very simple thing, exams. I was once a, a campus student before back in the day about, I, I don't want to know how many years it is, but I hate exams. There's always a part of the exams that my, my thinking was like, why do I have to do this? It doesn't make sense. But I do see the purpose of exams, right? It's to know if the student totally understood the complex ideas of what the teacher is trying to say. If you're a mathematics professor, you have to do a calculus exam if you truly want to know if your student totally understood calculus. How would you feel, example, if you're just handing out a driver's license to people who hasn't fully understood how to drive, right? Or just basically like ran a red light. I remember a brother once in Sydney just ran a red light. Or how would you feel if you have a doctor and then doesn't even know how to give the right kinds of medicine and he has a medical certificate? The whole purpose of exams is to know if those people totally understood the concepts, right? In the same way, the term fearing God pops a lot of times in the Bible. And if you look at it, I did like a quick, like a, a word, you know, study on the term fearing God. And all of this kind of like pops up. And in different verses, it gives different kinds of situations on what fearing God means. Certain kinds of different situations often portray fearing God as love. Or certain kinds of situations often portray what fearing God as devotion or reverence. But the closest de description probably would be this. And it's in Deuteronomy. So if you open your Bibles and look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12. And it says here, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to Him. To love Him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 
Now, in your minds, if you just read it like that, it's so easy to understand. Clear cut. No problem. It says in this verse, obey God. Done. But can you really obey God to the point of sacrificing your son? It says here in this verse 2, to serve the Lord. Done. But can you really serve the Lord to the point of chopping wood, carrying the tools needed to kill the most important person in your life? To love him. Boom. Done. Easy. Let's go. Love God. Done. But can you still love the Lord? Even when it hurts, when everything's taken away from you. If you explain it like that, it's harder, isn't it? And this verse in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis 22, this scripture is exactly what God's point was. This scripture actually helps us to understand this complex idea of what fearing God means. And this theme about the fear of the Lord isn't just in the Old Testament alone. We as Christians believe that the Bible is a unified story of God, right? And in the New Testament, it's also the same. When Jesus pops up in the scene, Jesus also calls us to the same things. Luke 9, chapter 23, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. And in a very clear and graphic way as well, in the later verses, Jesus even said, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. All of these images has to have a point. And the point is that this is what truly fearing God means. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what the standard is. To put God, Jesus, above anything and anyone in this world. It's easier said than done, but let's, let's make a, a, a good picture on how this would look like in our lives right now. If we Christians, we really fear God, this is what it looks like. People who fear God make God the priority in their lives. Boom, done. Easier said than done. But this is how it goes, right? Your life choices should revolve around God. One practical way to know this, a litmus test to know this, is, for example, if you're a Christian, what would be the day that you would say, I prioritize God the most? It's on Sundays, right? And it's, it's, it's really not just about Sundays, because as Christians, we have to prioritize God every day of the week. But Sunday is just what's a litmus test, because even if a religious person could prioritize Sundays, how much more if a true Christian does not prioritize Sundays? How would this look like in our lives? On Sundays, what would be on the first thing on your mind? Would it be going to church, worshiping God, serving God, fellowshipping God, offering your lives and lifting up your hands and saying, I'm here because I love you, God. Or is it you have something else on your mind, something that is probably, should I work today on a Sunday? Should I basically have to leave early because 
I have another commitment with somebody else? Or what's worse is, should I just skip Sundays because I have another priority such as, I don't know, a running club or a marathon or something that would probably be better? And that's the kind of thing that you have to look at and you have to understand because Abraham, if you look at it, Isaac was the one that is really attached. Abraham was really attached to Isaac. That was the only thing that he really valued the most. But yet, what did Abraham do? He was willing to give it up and offer it to God. What are the Isaacs or what are the things that we are really attached to in our lives that are so difficult to give up? Who or what are the Isaacs of our lives? A running club, a job, friends, work. We have to think about this because this is what fearing God means. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen on that? It's a bit of a hard teaching, but that's what the scriptures are saying, right? Another point. People who fear God commit to God's standards. In this chapter, Abraham, if you look at it in verse 6, Abraham took it upon himself to carry the knife and the fire. And if I am Abraham, if I've got like three servants, it would be so easy for me to say like, hey servants, can you just grab the fire? You know, I'll be the one who would like slay, you know, Isaac. All right. But for three days, like, I can't take it. I'll just have to like, you go and sort it out. God didn't lay out the whole criteria on how to kill Abraham. But Abraham knew exactly what God wanted him to do. To have total devotion. He did not just settle for the standards, but he actually went up and tried to commit to God's standards. He didn't just say, it's good enough. You servants will just carry Isaac and then boom. All right, I'll just do the, give me the, give me the knife and then done. It's not like that. God, Abraham himself, he took the full brunt of it because he knew that that was what God wanted him to do. People who fear God would commit to the standards, not go down. Not go down to the standards. As Christians, we tend to have this mindset, right? Especially if it's hard on our lives. We tend to go down to what the world's standards is. And let's be honest, if we're disciples, the standards of disciples are not low. The standards of disciples are like up there. But if we think about it, that's what God wants us to do. And God considered Abraham as that is the fear of God because he totally commit to the standards. And if in our lives right now, how would that look like? Now the devil, this is what the devil kind of like tricks us on, right? The devil gives us an option to commit to God's standards or to lower it down. In our lives, do we kind of like have this mindset that we're kind of like watering down what God wants us to do? In our Bible talks, 
we, sometimes if you're a Bible talk leader or basically if you're a disciple in general, sometimes we are kind of like tempted to lower down the standards in our lives. We're sometimes committed to have this mentality where it's like, oh, can we just meet up once a month? Or a lot of people have a hard time in going to this event instead of going on a day might as well, let's do it at night. Or, hey, like, why are we meeting up often? Can we just do, like, maybe once every three months? That's not what it is all about. And I've heard some stuff like that. And, and it's got to be honest, it's kind of like discouraging for disciples. And it's kind of like discouraging for exactly new disciples as well. Because imagine if you're a new disciple and you hear that kind of talk. That mindset will already be instilled in their minds. It's like, that's not the standard. So it's okay for me to lower the standards down. Now, you might think, oh, this is a very hard teaching. But my point to, would probably give you a sense of relief. Because truly becoming men and women who fear God is not all about us just carrying the burdens alone. In my next point, we have to know that it is God who provides. In the story, we can actually see how God provides. And the key of the thing here is it all hinges on the pronouns. In the buildup of this story, we could see the pronouns and the characters change. In the first part of the story, when the test was still unfolding, we could see who was doing the effort. And if you just look at the he's of the story, he God, he Abraham. In verse 6, it was he, Abraham himself, who carried the knife, the tools needed for the sacrifice, for offering Abraham. In verse 9, it was Abraham who bound Isaac. In verse 10, it was he, Abraham, who reached out his son and took the knife to slay his son. But suddenly, the story completely changed tune. And we can see the clear change of these things that are happening here. After that, an angel appeared, and from then on out, the he's have totally changed. In verse 2, God said, take your son and sacrifice him. But in verse 12, the story completely changed. And God is saying now, do not lay on the boy. Don't do anything on him. And what prompted this change, right? In verse 12, it says here now, right? In verse 15, God said that I swear by myself. And in verse 17, God also said, I swear by my blessings. The he's have completely changed from Abraham. And now God is also the one who's doing all of that stuff. And the thing that prompted this change was when God saw Abraham's faith. When God saw Abraham's fear of him. In verse 8, Abraham's faith led him to be convinced that God himself. And if you hold on to that verse, Abraham wasn't relying on himself. But he said, God himself will provide the lamb. 
After that, we could see who actually was doing all the effort. It was God himself who provided the ram. And later on, it was God himself who will be blessing Abraham. And not only Abraham, but everyone and his descendants as well. Now, for those who are flying, I know a couple of um, men staff are going to Melbourne and a couple of um, teams also going to Sydney for a whole month. Apologies for this um, analogy. But if you're riding an airplane, you can only do so much to have control over, right? Obviously, if you want the safest and quickest flight, then you've got to pick the airline who's got the best reviews. And that's Jetstar jokes. <laughs> If you have a control on which plane to go, then obviously you have to pick Air New Zealand, one of the f- yeah. top three, you know, right? Obviously, if you're going to travel, you have to make sure that you're traveling to a place that's safe. If you're traveling to Iraq, then the chance of you getting hit by a missile would probably increase, right? Or if you're traveling to like somewhere, you know. Um, and at the same time, you have apparently, I say Google this, you have to travel um, and check the weather as well. The chances of you having a car crash on a foggy day would increase by about 5%. You know? But if you really think about it, it really boils down to who's flying the ship. And that is the thing that you do not have control of. Your life is in the hands of the person who's flying that plane. And for a fun fact, I don't know if this would be considered fun, 56% of all aircraft accidents are because of pilot error. So half of that is really something that you're not in control of. It's just on the, on the pilot. Does that mean that you just give up and then book a one-way ticket to Iraq for a holiday on the dodgiest, smallest, oldest aircraft that you can find? Of course not. But there will always be a sense of trust that belief that the person who's flying that plane, regardless if you knew him or not, will provide you with a safety that you're expecting and hoping for. That pilot would not be a pilot if it is not in his character, nor if it is not in his being, that he would want to provide the safety for his passengers. He wouldn't do that job in the first place. In the same way, God wants you to show your faith, but in the end, he will be the one to provide. All throughout the Bible, you can see the concept of God's character. And it's just kind of starting to get a little bit crazy as well, because from the Old Testament all to the New, God is in a somewhat daring you to say, you have to rely on me in Judges. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. What kind of person would say to a person who's ready to go to war and say, bro, too many men, lower it down. But God's point of that is saying, I don't want you to rely on yourself, but you have to rely on me. Fast forward to the New Testament in the same way. This is what Jesus was also saying. Jesus was saying, are you not much more valuable than they? This is my day times with Peter. Look at the birds. Look at, are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus was in somewhat telling and reminding us that we are more valuable than anything here. Of course, God will provide. And if you think about really complex theologies, 
And, and Paul was writing this to the letter of Ephesians. Paul was even reminding the character of God. Because even at that point, even your salvation, it is not about you, but it is God who's the one who's providing. It is by grace that you have been saved, not through your actions, but through your faith and through God. It is the gift of God. How can we apply this knowledge in our lives? In our personal lives, we sometimes fall into this I can't mentality, right? Our minds are filled with stuff like this. I'm just, you know, I, I had a survey about different kinds of Bible talks. Like, for example, for married Bible talks, it says, like, I cannot raise a godly family. Or, I cannot get that job that would fit the schedule with church and my faith. Or, I cannot serve ex- effectively. I don't know how. For Cap, it's like, I don't know, Cap are like a weird born. I cannot reach out to people I'm not close with. Or I cannot be a Bible talk leader. Or I cannot make disciples. And an odd comment here is like, I cannot get a wife. I wonder who said that. But, you know, for, for Bible talk leaders, this, this one's even worse. Like, I cannot grow this church up to 200. Or I cannot be part of that mission planting. For teens, teens are like also a bit anxious as well. Teens are like, I cannot be a disciple. I would want to, want to, want to be a disciple, but I don't know how it looks like, so I cannot be a disciple. For everyone, here's, here's a big biggie. I cannot get rid of my sin. But the, but the value is in the pudding, Right? In the same way with Abraham's story, let's look at our pronouns. God wants our faith, God wants our actions, and he will provide the rest. Instead of having this mentality of making it just by ourselves, put God as the main provider in our lives. How would this look like now? Right? It's so much better. God and I can serve effectively. God and I can be a Bible talk leader. All throughout. God and I can get a wife. That just probably sounds weird, but, you know. But the whole point that I'm saying is, right? Can I get an amen, Jono? Amen. But we sometimes get warped in this mentality that we are the ones who's providing for God's kingdom. Right? But it's totally the opposite. It is God that provides. He just wants us to do our part. Our part. So instead of having those eyes change and become those with God, it gives us this mentality of having this godly mindset too. Knowing that it's really not about us would give us this realistic perspective on where we stand in church and realistic perspective on, how, on when, where we stand in the world. It would give us a change in mindset for example, if you're leading a Bible talk or if you're leading a ministry, it would give us this change in mindset that I am not the one who's leading this, but God is the leader. It would give us this huge humbling effect that says, because I am not the supreme leader of this ministry, but God is. It would give us this whole detailed idea of like, I'm just the one that God used as a vessel. And this would lead us to change the way we reach out. It would lead us to change how we reach out to people instead of like relying on our skills and how good we are salespersons. 
We would be more in touch with God. We would be praying to God every time we talk to a new guy. We would be praying to God every time we do a Bible study. We would be praying to God every time there's a, there's a change of, in heart with this person who's studying the Bible. We do not rely on ourselves, but we rely on God. Because at the end, it is God who changes people's hearts. Not us, not our skills. We can just do our part, but God will provide. So instead of having those eyes change and become we with God. And not only does God want us to do our part, He wants us to be great as well. Which leads to my last and final point. Just do greater things because God has done the greatest thing for you. I'm not going to lie. Every time I hear that song, like even greater things, I always like cry for some reason. That's why I like, why do you have to put it the, the, the song before I preach? But there's this whole idea, right? That God was not vague about who to sacrifice. In verse 2, the identity of the sacrifice has been described in a very specific manner. In verse 2, it's like pouring salt to the wound. God wanted Abraham to sacrifice something. And in verse 2, he said, then God said, take your son. And if that wasn't clear enough, God made it more clear. And God said, Abraham, take your only son. And if that wasn't even clearer, because like Ishmael was also there, Abraham, God was saying, Abraham, take the son whom you love, Isaac. And when God used this word, your son, in Hebrew, its original word is this. <clears throat> I'm ready with the, with the phlegm. So the original word is like, Yakad. Uh, Yakad. But the whole point of this word is to denote a term for a son who has passed away. It is equivalent to a person's life that you would be considered as something so irreplaceable. Someone that you love so much that if that person was gone, that's it. That was God's call. That was God's test. God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, sacrifice your son. Someone that you would consider as someone irreplaceable. Someone that you would consider so precious to you. Another description of this word, by the way, is this. Your only begotten son. That was the description of this. Abraham, God was telling him, Abraham, sacrifice your only begotten son. Now, just to lighten up the mood, this gets a little bit too intense. I'm going to talk of another Abraham. And I, I feel like Americans know this, but who's, who's other most famous Abraham? Well, it's got to be Abraham Lincoln, right? Wow, Tyson. You, wow. <laughs> but if you do a quick Google search on the best leader in history, Abraham Lincoln always comes up in the top five. 
But if you think about it, if you lived at that time during Abraham Lincoln's time, you probably would disagree to the point where you actually detested him. That's why he got assassinated, because a lot of people disagreed on this matter. But if you look at it in the general context, in a historic point of view, if you take it away and look at his whole works, then you would say that he would be a, a good leader. He was responsible for preserving the American Union. He was responsible for abolishing slavery. He was responsible for strengthening the federal government. But at that point, people knew him as someone who led the people to an American civil war that basically killed 600,000 people. People only understood his value when history became the judge of what he did. As time went on, his actions became obvious that in the long run, it was the one who benefited most of the people. Time became the judge, and once Lincoln was viewed from afar, not on a magnifying glass, we actually could see what he was all about. In the same way, we sometimes view God's actions like we're looking at the magnifying glass. I know for some, because for me, I was like that too when I read this chapter, uh, the first time I, I read it. I felt that this was so unfair. How can a God be that cruel, a God who's the creator of the universe, ask someone to sacrifice his own son, a tiny human putting all that pressure to sacrifice the most important person in his life? All of this was a test of Abraham's faith, in Abraham's love for God, in Abraham's devotion for him. But some people think that this is unfair. Why would a God do that? But as Christians, this is what I'm saying again. The Christians, we believe that the Bible is a unified story of God's amazing love for us. And if you think about it in the Bible's point of view, isn't that what God has done for us too, right? For us Christians, we believe that God sent his only son as well. Even in this story, God didn't literally kill Isaac. He provided for that sacrifice. But what did God do for us in the long run? He was the one who provided for our salvation to the point where he sent his son, his only begotten son, to save us from our sins. In this story, we can see Abraham and how he was very fearful and he was very loving to God. But at the same time, in this other point of perspective, we could see God in how he was loving to us as well. And knowing this truth, right, this should change something in us. Fast forward to the New Testament. People who saw Christ, people who witnessed firsthand what Christ was about, they would preach this idea that because knowing this idea that God came down to this world to save us because he loved us, it would cause this huge change in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, For Christ's love compels us, 
because we are convinced that he died for us. And later on in this chapter, what would make the what what would happen if we totally understood this idea? The old us is gone. The new is here. And this would do something greater for us too, to the point where I believe this message, I am now Christ's ambassador. Knowing Christ's love should cause a drastic change in our lives. Knowing Christ's love should make us want to be like Christ too. And Christ has done a lot. Christ was so loving. Christ was so giving. Christ was so serving. Christ was so bold. And Christ was so repulsed with sin. But here's the kicker. Christ wants us to do even greater things than him. Open our Bibles to John 14, verse 12. And it says here, very truly, this is Jesus, by the way. It says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than this. I know for teens, this would be, when you came here, I bet this was a very good time for you, that you learned a lot. In teens camp. And this would be the time where you start wondering about Jesus Christ. And this is the time that you probably would be wondering, okay, what do I do with this? This would be the best time for you to do greater things. If what's stopping you is like, I cannot be a disciple. Then knowing Christ's love, knowing that Jesus actually died for you. Instead of doing that, I cannot be a disciple. Then be one. Find out how to do it. For those people, back to my first point, where you get so attached with these worldly things that you cannot fear God. Knowing this idea that God and Christ died for you, this should be one of the main reasons that change that. If you cannot fear God, and it's so hard for you to fear Him, then maybe the idea... Of God loving you would change that fact. As we think about this idea and, and simmer on this whole concepts, let's be reminded on the th- three things that, that I was talking about. Let's be reminded that let's become people, let's become Christians who fear God. And let's be reminded about God's true character, that he is actually willing and he is determined to provide for us. All we just need to do is to do our part. And the last bit, which is the most important bit before we take communion, is we have to understand that we can do all of this because Christ died for us, went up to the cross, and sacrifice his life. And then on the third day, he showed the world what true power is all about and got resurrected in order for us to do even greater things than him. So as we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, let's remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And because he has done this amazing stuff for us, let us become men and women who fear God. Let us be knowledgeable to the fact and be convinced to the fact that God will provide for us in our lives. And let's be confident in, 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 in that. And because of that, Knowing that Christ loved for us, let us do amazing things for him. So let's pray for the communion. 
Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful time, and we thank you so much for this wonderful um, 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 day today, Lord, as we kind of like worship you and, and fellowship you and to listen to scriptures, Lord. Um, we pray for, that we be reminded of you um, sacrificing your life and, and dying for us and, and resurrecting for us, Lord, so that we may be saved, for us wretched people to have a new life. The old is gone and the new is here. Um, we pray for a good week and we pray for those people that have been affected for all the calamities. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.